I'm joined by uh, just another peripatetic mind. He is a doctor, a physician, a clinician, a researcher. Uh, he writes a newsletter like I do. And of course, he has a podcast. And he's been on the show uh, before when we were talking about how AI might change the healthcare industry and the practice of medicine. So I'm really happy to be joined by Eric Topol, a professor, a cardiologist, uh, an author, and amongst many other things. Eric, Happy New Year to you. Oh, Azim, it's great to be with you again. I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Well, you, you know, it's been four years, and so we have a chance also to look back on what we thought might be uh, <laughs> happening, which is great in our business because we do, both of us, sort of occasionally forecast. Now, I'm in my gym gear. You can maybe see this uh, mm. because, Eric, I live in my gym gear now uh, because medicine has become health and health has become health span. And that means I have to do three sessions of zone two cardio a week and a couple of sessions of zone five. And I do three sessions of weight. And it's just so much easier to live in my gym gear. We're thinking very differently some of us are increasingly so about health uh, now compared to say you know 25 years ago could you maybe characterize what that change has been in, in over your sort of co career as well because things feel like they are not just better therapies and you know more advanced diagnostics but there's a, a different way that we're thinking about this well there are many factors that have changed uh over these decades um notably there's so much more data on any given individual uh, we have an aging population, so just by nature of that, there's a lot more complexity. But what's a, a real challenge, uh, Azim, as you know, is that the amount of time we have with patients has markedly uh, truncated. So we have more complexity, less time, which is a recipe for more errors and less of a patient-doctor relationship, which is eroded greatly over uh, the last few decades, especially when we had this transition uh, for clinicians to become data clerks to uh, basically work on their electronic health record rather than what used to be the case, which was, uh, you know, very close eye to eye contact and a much more intimate uh, presence uh, when uh, a clinician and patient came together. I mean, that that is definitely uh, sort of something that we'd recognize as patients, right? You've given the clinician's uh, perspective. And in some sense, we can understand how that em emerges because the the family physician, we call them the GP in the UK, the general practitioner, um, would resolve so much more of the issues we would take to them, certainly when I was a child, because there were there were fewer specialisms around, right? There were just there were just not um some of the specialisms that exist today uh, were were not to be found even in in the most advanced uh, hospitals. So I, I I suppose that there's there is one part where once people start you start going through the specialist route, which the improved science gives us, you do end up with having to you know join the dots with through data, the handover from one physician to you know to to the next. But but I guess you're telling saying there's something more that is that is happening that ju than just making that more sophisticated process work. Exactly. And there's just so many layers of data, too, that uh, you just can't hand over because they're not even in the patient's record. You know, things like uh, a genome or sensor data or environmental data. So 
you know, what we have is the ability to capture uh, multimodal data uh, on any given individual, but uh, our ability to actually get our arms around it is compromised. Yeah. And, and But what about patients? I mean, how are patients thinking differently uh, about their health? I, I noticed on your book, uh, your bookshelves behind you, apart from your own excellent book, Deep Medicine, which uh, is still very relevant and people should go and buy, you have Outlive by Peter Atiyah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, that presents, I think, in a way, a different way of looking at you know, the purpose of health and, and health outcomes. I found it quite helpful because I had been thinking along those lines for a while. And of course, when, when an author goes off and does the deep thinking and turns it into a book, it, it helps you. And it helped me frame my health challenge as um, I, I want to be at least as physically strong and cognitively able when I'm 80 as I am today when I'm 52. Uh, and and in order to do the reason reasons are simple, uh, I have enough grumbles with my back <laughs> today. I don't really want them to get worse, and, and I want to be able to lift up my my grandkids, uh, assuming mm-hmm. they are not robots. Um, and and so so in order to do that, I can sort of see where I need to get to. And, and in the last five years, I, I reframed the way I thought about what is my relationship with the thing that I called the doctor and health and turned it into one that was about this is where I need to be in 30 years. What are the things that will upset, upset that journey? Um, you know, and I can go into more detail in, you know, later, but, but I'm just curious about whether that is a, 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 an increasingly common framing of how individuals think about their, their health. I think this is uh, one of the most important movements of our time, Azim, which is promoting healthy aging. Uh, Peter's book got into that. Some of it was quite good, as you alluded to. Some of it I thought was really not backed up by evidence, and I challenged him on that. But nonetheless, overall, we have powerful tools. I know we're going to discuss some of these uh, to promote aging, some of which has to be self-initiated, like you mentioned, the strengthening and promoting cognitive function, but some of it will be available that wasn't, you know, previously uh, part of our, our, the tools that we could use. So, you know, I think the potential for any given individual to take more charge and to promote their healthy aging is going to be a very big, um, you know, topic, uh, you know, that we didn't really have primary prevention of illnesses before. That was a fantasy. Um, And, and, you know, simple things like, you know, I give Peter credit. uh, He really raised the issue about lack of protein in our diet, especially as we get older. Uh, And the fact that these crazy recommendations by governments are completely out of line with what the data uh, and evidence shows. So, you know, I think, you know, we're learning more about healthy aging that's going to help us. And it's just a matter of, you know, are people going to tune in? Are they going to take more uh, charge on this? Because the opportunity uh, to live a longer, healthier life is unquestionably going to be one of the options we have. And and it uh, involves uh, six lean chicken breasts a day, uh, (laughs) as well as 35 (laughs) different plants. So, you know, Go long on chicken farms, uh, is my view. Um, I mean, it, it is it is a really fascinating um, 
shift. Uh, my my dad uh, passed away last uh, year, and he was. Mm. Um, I should know this off the top of my head. He was eighty seven, mm. uh, and um, what was fascinating was that he vastly outlived his life expectancy because he was born in 1935 to a small landowner on the fringes of what is now the Punjab in Pakistan, right near the Indian border. So you're born at rural, not even urban, and his family migrated to the cities. Uh, and probably his life expectancy at birth was 40 or 45, maybe 50. And he got an extra, you know, 37 years to that. Um, he had some cognitive decline. He had really quite severe sort of physical frailty. Um, but up until the last seven or eight years, I would say he was still had sort of sufficient flourishing. And, and of course, you know, in his generation, we didn't we we hadn't all been through that curve where we can look at the ages of, you know, 30, 50, 60, 70 and see another you know 20 to 80 years uh, ahead of us, depending on, you know, where, where you are. And, and so I guess that that's what creates um, both a, a public health uh, priority, but also a sort of individual awareness of what do I need to do? How can I, um, you know, diagnose, evaluate, prescribe in the broader sense, and then uh, c comply so that I can still be functional, in my case, in my 60s, 70s, uh, you know, 80s and and hope and hopefully beyond that. And, and I think that that is a really, you know, sociologically, that's kind of fundamental because we're only going back one generation where people were actually surprised by the length of the lives that they, they led. Absolutely. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I think the, the, the important concept here is understanding lifespan and health span, because if you can have uh, health span and, and lifespan currently uh, tightly. Uh, and so you don't have uh, any significant cognitive decline or quality of life. That's really the goal. So, uh, you know, just having prolonging lifespan, longevity, which of course is uh, fixation among many billionaires today and many companies, mm -hmm. uh, that's not exactly the ticket. That's not the goal, of course. But I do think um, that we will approximate that, you know, these will con converge these goals over time. If we push on the things that we're starting to see now in terms of, you know, it really would be considered some some breakthroughs in in, in science across many domains of life science. Uh, I was talking to a, a, a friend of mine who who is a little bit older than me, and, and he's had um, uh, uh, IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, as a sort of for, for 15 years or something. And and I, I asked him about what he's done in terms of testing for his his microbiome. And actually, it hadn't kind of crossed his path. And of course, it hadn't crossed his doctor's paths as well, because it was only in 2001, I think, that the term was was uh, was mm. coined, uh, the microbiome. And the science is very, very young. And it hasn't, at least in the UK, really made its way consistently in the diagnostic and treatment pathways. And that's a great example of a a brand new piece of science. We've discovered that there's an entire universe inside our gut that that is really important. We don't understand. There's, there's more. I think there's more genetic variation between my microbiome and your microbiome and my mum's microbiome than there is um, in our in our you know main genome. Right. That there's more. Yeah. Of, yeah I mean, it's a, it's. A, oh, well, we, you know, 
Yeah. To your point, uh, no, I'm just going to say, you know, long COVID is a vexing condition. And the very first and only randomized trial to show improvement, marked improvement in symptoms across the board, was a microbiome manipulation trial recently. So, yeah, I mean, we're, we're learning so much about all the different omics, but the microbiome is, is one of those really exciting frontiers that we are starting now to be able to engineer. Uh, so that is going to be a way to control the immune system and inflammation, and it, it carries over to many different organ system conditions that we'll be able to either better treat or prevent uh, a, an illness from ever occurring. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's that's um, that's very true. And you've said the word uh, omics, actually, which, of course, is yet more data that we're going to have to contend with when we when we talk about um, uh, uh, AI um, and, uh, and 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 so on. Um, I, and then, you know, one of the things that had also occurred to me has been is that the the relationship that people may have had with their physician uh 10 or 15 years ago can can start to change so i i I just started a program where um you know my my doctor uh put me through a you know full body mri a cpet Mm -hmm. test Mm -hmm. a load of bloods um calcium scoring on my uh heart uh i guess that's just the ct with the dye um dexa scans for my body fat please don't ask about that they did that after christmas i mean it's a really that's super mean uh, a lot of the prescriptions that have come out of it have not been have not been you know take this pill um and uh you know take this injection they have been about exercise particular forms and sort of other other types of of things and and of course i'm in a privileged position because this was a friend of mine and he kind of was running this thing and we sort of got it got it going but do you think that type of holistic scanning of a person is something that the healthcare system can can provide or ought to be providing in in some way yeah this is um something that is getting you know some traction among the uh, affluenza folks but really right. there's no evidence i mean the problem with the total body mri is it does pick up a lot of false positives so sure. you some people wind up getting you know, biopsies of their liver or their lung or, you know, where there's nodules, uh, oftentimes they're benign, but, you know, the the procedures and the anxiety and the cost and, you know, uh, the yield, it's just hasn't been proven. That is the net benefit. And in fact, if you're concerned about cancer, uh, to pick it up on a scan, um, it, it means, you know, that that cancer is, is no longer microscopic, which you might have a better chance. Yeah. I mean, it's got billions of cells now. And and, uh, wouldn't it be better if we had a blood test like we're seeing these, of course, many liquid biopsy tests, which are similarly not uh, got firm evidence of their value in healthy people. But the one scan that I'm intrigued about um, that I think we should use more uh, broadly that you got, the DEXA scan. Yeah. The DEXA scan is really, uh, it's, in, it's inexpensive and it provides not just about your bone density, but it tells you about your, your fat um, and subcutaneous visceral fat. And the other thing, which is striking, just a paper just came out 
from the uh, company that's an AI drug discovery company called Incitro. Mm. And the DEXA scan was the most valuable test to tell you about your liver uh, for being able to uh, pick up the uh, fatty liver uh, problem, uh, now known as MASH uh, or yeah. MAFLD. So um, this is amazing that a, a test in the U.S. that runs about $100, $150 can have such a high yield and it's not one that's giving false positives, but rather giving new insights you can't get. I mean, yeah. as you know very well, uh, body mass index, BMI, is a terrible uh, index with all sorts of false under and over diagnoses of obesity. On the other hand, if we could get DEXA scans uh, yeah. more widely, we'd have a quantitative metric. And, you know, with the new ways we can intervene with uh, obesity, uh, no less keep an eye on bone density and also track the liver, which we're not doing enough of. So many millions of people have undiagnosed mash uh, of fatty yeah. liver. So, you know, I think that's one scan that uh, because it's low cost and it doesn't have this false positive problem uh, would be of more value, but it just hasn't ever gotten popular in the medical community. Yeah, it's very true. It's also a really painless scan. So the, the problem with any MRI, especially if you're me, is that I, I immediately fantasize about being in a coffin thrown over over the side of a, the Titanic. Uh, and I'm pulling, hitting the emergency panic button every you know, minute. Uh, and uh, and it's expensive. It's uncomfortable. I was actually OK in the end with my last uh, MRI. Um, but, but the DEXA scans, which I, I've done a few of, are really painless. They're really quick. Um, and you get you do get that really useful information. So um, and, and, you know, at 100 bucks, so they're about the same sort of price in the UK. You, you know what? You could do one every year or every couple of years and you could start to see progress. And I actually also found that my really cheap um, knockoff bioimpedance scales mm. correlate really, really closely to changes in the body fat measurement of my DEXA. I mean, they give the wrong number. I mean, they're always sort of 2% under, but effectively they, 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 they follow the trend. So I can effect check my overall body fat daily at home uh, if, if I need to. It, but, you know, when you start to look at this, it, it starts to, what it starts to do is um, raise the amount of data that is kind of being tracked, the number of biomarkers that are being being tracked. And I think there is this kind of balance between, um, you know, what should be, how long should we, how long should we wait, right? We, we as, as consumers are, have access to better information. We also have access to better tools. Um, you know, anyone who's used Google Spreadsheets has probably got something that's better than an EHR system in many hospitals. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and, and so should we, how much of this do we start to push towards a consumer because they've got the Apple Watch or the Fitbit because they can afford a 150 buck DEXA scan so that they can start to take more, you know, re responsibility? Is that the, is is that something that can happen through health systems or is that just going to be something that is the privilege of those who care about it and have the resources to engage in it? Yeah, great question. Um... Azim, I think the problem here, of course, is the, the health systems can't do it because they don't have a home for data like sensors or genome or microbiome. Right. Uh, so 
it's really going to be, this is, I think, that concept of the virtual health coach with AI, multimodal AI, to bring in all these layers of data and uh, help coach an individual uh, regarding uh, how to better manage a condition that's already cropped up or one that, you know, might uh, be at high risk for that person. So I think that's where we're headed now that we've seen the likes of uh, GPT-4 and, yeah. of course, where all this is headed. You know, I think al- already the concept that a person would have uh, the virtual medical assistant um, is, is, you know, something, of course, as we discussed four years ago. Uh, but now I think we're, it's emerging. We're not there yet. We have uh, unimodal, like for diabetes, or we have for depression. Um, you know, we have a few uh, hypertension, but we don't have a holistic coach yet. And that's where, you know, over the next few years, we'll see that emerging. The, yes, when we met uh, a few years ago, I think one of your lines was that AI could restore the care in healthcare. And, and as you look, on from four years, of course, we had COVID and it came in and it sped up a lot of things and it, it slowed down some other things. Um, oh, you know, are we still, do you still believe that? Are we still on that path? Are we ahead of where you thought we might be? 